0: Hello, and welcome. I'm Dr. Christina Spalding, and this is the Research Bites podcast brought to you by Science Matters Academy of Animal Behavior. We foster conversations about science and its application to animal training and behavior in an effort to improve well-being for animals and the people they live with. Please enjoy geeking out about the science of behavior. This is Christina, and I wanted to talk to you guys about the Unlocking Resilience course that is starting on February 7th. This is my big deep dive course that covers a wide range of topics, but all related to stress, well-being, and resilience. So really, the point of this class is to give you the tools that you need to foster the development of more resilient dogs. So this is great for both the prevention of behavior issues in dogs, but also for the treatment of behavior issues in dogs. So we talk about what animals need to be okay. We talk about what stress is and how it impacts behavior. Then we have a big unit on emotion and cognition where we talk about the animal mind, Uh, how emotions work and how they influence behavior, the overlap between mental and physical health and how animals make decisions. And then we get into resilience. So why some animals are more resilient than others and how we can foster the development of that resilience. And finally, we close out with talking about emotional and mental health, specifically looking at what we can take from the research on uh, human mental health and how we can apply that to the animals that we work with. So we will talk about hyperactivity, impulsivity, trauma, fear, and aggression in that unit. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to the website www.sciencemanners.com slash unlocking dash resilience. I hope to see you there. Dr. Charmaine Miller has a bachelor's of science in evolutionary biology and interdisciplinary studies and a Ph.D. in stress biology and behavior from Pennsylvania State University. She is currently a postdoctoral fellow in the One Health lab of Dr. Megan Frost Davis at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Miller studies the context behind human health benefits stemming from the human animal bond and human animal interaction via pet ownership and animal-assisted therapy. Her work involves utilizing a one health and environmental justice approach to evaluate how social determinants and environmental factors in conjunction with the human animal bond and human animal interaction experiences affects the health of vulnerable populations. That face chronic stress exposure in daily life. The populations to which Dr. Miller focuses her efforts are on pediatric cancer patients, low income and underserved communities, and racial and ethnic minorities. Dr. Miller is also formally trained within applied companion animal behavior, which she applies to assess the health and well being of therapy dogs during animal assisted therapy to ensure that their well being is not compromised while working. Her career goals are to continue to conduct research within the field by evaluating and designing interventions to help create a better quality of life for the populations described above. Dr. Miller receives funding for her work from the NIH Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Development, the Human-Animal Bond Research Institute and Pet Partners, and the NIH Office of Extramural Research. Hi, Charmaine. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Yes, thank you so much for having me. This truly is an honor and my first podcast, so it's very exciting.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you here because you're going to be talking about sort of a different perspective and different aspect of working with dogs than what we typically talk about. But what I want to start with is if you could just tell me a little bit about your background, sort of what you do now and how you
1: ended up here. Yeah, so it's definitely quite the story. And I like to tell students that, what's the phrase that they'll use, a roundabout path. But to me, it's it's always a straightforward path. You can always... Take what you've learned and apply it to just your present day work. It becomes advantageous in the end. So I suppose I'll start with where I came from and then I'll come to the conclusion of where I am today. But so I pursued a bachelor's of science in biology with a focus on evolutionary uh, biology and ecology. And towards the end of my degree, I found animal behavior. And I immediately fell in love just learning about all the really neat and complex behaviors that so many different taxa were capable of, including fish, which definitely surprised me. Things like displaying a courtship dance to a, a fellow cons, conspecifics, as well as building a nest for offspring. It was, it was really just kind of, I guess, earth shattering. I was like, what? This is neat. I've had so many fish. I I should have interacted with them more, right? Yeah. So with finding animal behavior and especially with just kind of kindling these interests in fish, uh, fish behavior, I did. De- I decided to pursue that uh, in graduate school. So I started a PhD in biology, but my focus was definitely animal behavior, specifically with looking at fish behavior in different contexts, different environments, whether that be in the wild or within the lab, and specifically looking at the effects of stress, especially during development, on future adult behavior. And I did that with domesticated species of fish as well as descendants from a wild population. So towards the end of my PhD, with everything that happens as you're a graduate student running around, thinking I should be writing constantly. Towards the end of my PhD, I realized that my interest in ecology had waned a bit. And of course not to disparage ecology or ichthyology, they're amazing fields, but you know, everyone needs, everyone ponders their path and their place in the world. And I've realized that I missed mimology so much just everything to do with mammalian health, behavior. And I also volunteered and worked at veterinary hospitals and animal shelters for, for years, spanning back to undergrad. And during graduate school, I found immense stress relief by just working at an animal shelter. And I decided essentially during my PhD to pursue an online certificate program in Applied Companion Animal Behavior. And this was through the University of Washington. I loved it. I then decided, you know what, I'm going to go to veterinary school. Like many potential vets, there is just years, maybe a decade (laughs) of pondering, do I want to do this? And and that spanned back to my undergrad. But at the end of my PhD, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go for it. And I applied, I got into my dream schools, which were Cornell and PennVet. But during my PhD studies, while I was abroad, I became very ill due to several viral exposures. And that led to uh, my current disabilities today. So with dealing with that, I just realized after going to school for, for nine years at this point, I just couldn't do four more intensive years of didactic learning. I would melt. Yeah. So then I took a year off and continued to contemplate, you know, the all, you know, the very heavy question of what do I want to do? And so I took a year off and I somehow stumbled upon an opportunity. So I was looking for jobs and one of the jobs contacted me about a position that had nothing to do with the position I applied for, applied for. It was, it was definitely just surprising and just lovely. So it was a faculty member that ran a One Health lab at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And she said, Hey, we need an animal behaviorist to monitor therapy dog welfare during pediatric patient animal-assisted therapy sessions. And I was just floored. I was like, how did you find me? Magical (laughs) woman. How? What? (laughs) Luckily, when I applied for said position, I put everything on there, including my animal behavior work and my background. But I was like, nothing's going to come of that. But yeah, so she talked about that. And that led to a postdoctoral fellowship, which I was surprised. I said, no more school. But it's, it's crazy because from the start, it didn't feel like that. It felt like I've nested into my passion and it feels like I'm just loving it. It's, it's, it's hard to yep. explain. It doesn't feel like work. It feels like I know that feeling. Yeah. Yep. And of course, you know, with postdocdom, you have those intense periods of stress where you're like, what did I do? But more than anything, it always comes back to you, gosh, I just love love what I do. I have my chonky cat in the background (laughs) and it's great. I get to read about cats, of course, dogs more so. But for when I was planning to go to veterinary school, I wanted to do veterinary animal behavior, companion animal behavior and, you know, learn the clinical relationship between what's happening physiologically and the outward behavioral expression. So I found myself essentially where I wanted to be. And ironically, my faculty mentor is a vet and everyone I work with basically is a veterinarian. So I'm kind of this honorary vet within the lab. But of course, you know, the title of animal behaviorist is everything I've always wanted. So today, my research interests. So I've been able to apply my journey, everything. Um, my knowledge mm-hmm. in evolutionary biology, animal behavior, stress biology. And I've been able to take those disciplines and apply them to assessing and addressing different public health problems. And which is amazing. I mean, it's so interesting,
0: right? Isn't it? I always find it incredible how things always seem to work out in that way. Yes. Right? Because you went through a lot, it's complex. Yes. As, I mean, I, graduate school is hard enough on its own without also getting sick on top of it and having to totally change your plans. And then you, you know, you ended up in this job that it sounds like you're very, very happy in and being able to work on some things that really mean a lot to you.
1: Yes, exactly. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of saying putting out good will hopefully give you good in return. So I'm, right. I'm a very big pusher of be kind to everyone. Of course, I've grown as a person. Everyone does, but that's yeah. definitely a main um, just kind of thing that I like to share, a mantra I like to share today. So yeah. So, uh, and the particular sector that I'm working in is looking at how human-animal interaction whether that be animal-assisted therapy within hospital settings um, or pet ownership itself, can potentially alleviate the negative health effects that come with chronic stress exposure. And chronic stress can be, you know, within a hospital setting, the diagnosis, the uh, abrupt change of daily life to daily life itself, uh, working, dealing with social interactions that may be uncomfortable just things of that nature so that's essentially a brief overview of what i of what i'm doing although animal welfare definitely plays a part in that veterinary care access health equity and of course mm-hmm. one health so
0: yes and i'm very excited to talk about those things and s- I know the listeners may be wondering what some of these things are, and we will definitely come back to to that. (laughs) So that's a big part of what we're going to talk about today. Before we move into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of where you started with stress and looking at stress in fish. And I think it's important that we preface this with talking about why dog trainers might care about stress in fish.
1: Yes. So
0: most of the people that listen to this podcast probably work with dogs. There's probably people working with other mammals as well. And then there's a handful of people that maybe work with birds or reptiles. And I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how well the stress research generalizes or doesn't generalize from one taxa or another. So one taxonomic group to another.
1: Yes. Of course, totally. And I I definitely understand for uh, listeners to be like, fish, what? Why? How is... (laughs) But I swear, there is a very interesting just base of knowledge behind fish behavior research and stress biology research in fish. So, Mm -hmm. you know, of course, from an evolutionary perspective... Different species live in different environments, and those environments call for different behaviors uh, in order to navigate those environments. And then, of course, you have underlying gene expression and the interaction between those genes. So, I mean, you have a lot at play here from species to species, animal to animal, population to population. But there are just certain systems that have just been so critical and crucial for life to persist. And have been maintained from taxonomic group to taxonomic group. So fish to reptiles to birds and mammals, of course. And the systems that I've researched and I've found this for this to be the case are specific brain and bodily brain and body systems involved in the stress responses. So during my PhD, I studied two stress response systems. One was my focused system of choice. But these two systems are the sympathetic adrenal medullary axis and SAM for short. And you can think of this as the primary system involved in the fight or flight response. So this system is very much at play with releasing adrenaline and noradrenaline during acute stressful situations. The uh, And for the... Mm-hmm. For our listeners,
0: this is what we would typically associate with arousal, emotional yes. arousal.
1: Yes, indeed. Indeed. And of course, arousal can occur in non-threatening situations or even non-aversive situations. So with the activation of the SAM access, it can be in those non-stressful stress-associated situations as well. Regardless, it's activated for some sort of advantageous purpose for the animal to navigate a situation or their environment. So the other stress response pathway, and this is my focus and where my knowledge base is primarily the other stress response pathway. And that's where the bulk of my work is based in. And what I've focused on during my degree was the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis. And this pathway is predominantly active and at play during long-term stress situations or in the face of um, aversive stimuli consistently, different time periods consistently, or for a single long extended period of time. And fish. So Fish actually have a functionally similar pathway compared to the HPA axis in mammals. So with fish, they have the hypothalamic-pituitary-interrenal axis. So they have a hypothalamus, they have a pituitary gland, and instead of the adrenal gland, like for us, they have just interrenal tissue, so renal, you can think of, of course, kidney and this pathway still releases a cascade of different hormones that lead to the end product, which is cortisol, just like the HPA axis. And fish, because this is one reason why fish have become a popular biomedical model in place of, instead of rodents, they're also less costly, and they produce a lot of offspring as well, which is also great for research purposes. But from a stress biology perspective, with the HPI axis and the HPA axis, they both release cortisol. And cortisol, you know, is is a critical hormone that allows us to adapt to different aversive situations or challenging situations. So of course, cortisol is a good thing. It allows us to persist through these stressful or challenging circumstances. It basically puts our body and brain at a level, an enhanced level that allows us to persist through these situations. But, you know, when you're facing consistent and extended activation of particularly the HPA axis, cortisol essentially can lead to wear and tear on the body. All these different systems and pathways are activated within the body and the brain at the cellular level. Eventually, they become just over overextended. So the way I like to think of it is a rubber band and essentially just literally just pulling the rubber band over and over and over and over. And eventually it becomes loose and doesn't function Mm -hmm. as it used to. So that's that's what we can think think of as the negative internal health effects or the negative internal effects of chronic chronic cortisol release. And from a health perspective, you know, this can, from a mammalian perspective, this can lead to increased baseline blood pressure, increased baseline heart rate, and that can lead to heart disease. There's also, you know, an increased risk of developing chronic illnesses or experiencing chronic illness flares. And then, of course, there's mental illness, having anxiety and non-threatening situations, depression, et cetera. So it all comes together in the end.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that should that should illustrate to people why looking at fish is relevant to looking at dogs. And and Mm -hmm. basically it's just, it is all connected. We have good data to show that the big picture of what's going on in say fish is similar enough to the big picture of what's going on in mammals that we can learn about mammal behavior by looking at fish behavior, which might sound a little bit strange, but this has been done for a while because we've seen that it's it works, essentially, that there is that relationship there. And in your dissertation, I know that you looked at the differences between wild-caught fish and domestic populations of fish. And I think this is interesting because one of the things that's happening right now in the dog world, which you may be aware of, is that there's this trend of taking free-living essentially feral dogs, sometimes they're semi-feral, but free-living dogs and sort of adopting them and shipping them over to the United States or other countries and then placing them in homes. And I think this causes a lot of issues. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what you were looking at in these populations related to environmental mismatch and stress and the relationship that you saw there. So could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so with within my dissertation, so I looked at the behavior of these were wild-caught guppies and they were descendants of these wild-caught populations. And I looked at differences between this population's behavior between domesticated store buck so these guppies that are domesticated. They're not experiencing stress too often. You know, there's husbandry bits, but overall they weren't experiencing stress to the point of with these guppies in the wild, they were facing predation every day, every second of every day. So those definitely create or kind of display a difference in the level of stress that they were encountering on a daily basis. So with these Two populations, what I looked at is their behavior in a low-threatening environment. So something called an open field area, which is essentially um, you can think of it as a tank with this very barren area in the center, which for fish, there's a there's the thinking of they're more likely to be scooped up by predators. So that's why this area is often avoided. Versus when fish hug the sides of the tank, it's thought of as these fish are trying to flee, flee this novel environment. So that's actually showing signs of anxiety. So low threat, low threat tank, nothing in it, just this novel arena. Versus uh, I looked at the behavior of fish when there was a predator present, this very scary cichlid who was adorable. (laughs) And he was uh, separated uh, by the guppies with a transparent uh, piece of plexiglass. And what I did is I put the fish in either arena and it was randomized which one they experienced first. And I essentially had a webcam overhead and I recorded the behavior. And with behavioral coding, you know, you're looking at different things like frequency of movement, time moving, things of that nature and less time moving. The specific areas that they're more prone to hang out in the tanks can indicate their emotional state. So what I found was that wild uh, descended fish, particularly that were exposed to stress during development, which some fish I exposed to a husbandry stressor. I forgot to mention that. I'm sorry. Where a net was essentially put in the tanks and just kind of done in a, a figure eight motion to simulate, you know, taking the fish out for cleaning their tanks. So what I found was wild fish exposed to the stressor during development. They were more cautious than wild descended fish that had not experienced this stressor. And then um, I found that domesticated fish that were stressed during development or experienced a stressor during de- development behaved in the opposite fashion. So overall, that kind of displays how there's evolutionary, evolutionarily ingrained responses within the wildcat population for their behavior of being more cautious. And especially with experiencing a stressor in early life, adapting to experiencing that stressor, these internal systems, adapting pathways, different bodily tissues, and then later experiencing that stressor in later life, having been previously adapted to experiencing just an acute stressor during development, and then experiencing something like that again in later life and already being adapted to it and not necessarily having a high activation of the stress response. So they're able to cope a bit better with the situation. And then I saw that just overall, the fish were more active when a predator was present. So if I'm
0: understanding you correctly,
1: the wild descended fish that
0: were stressed during development were more cautious in the presence of a predator. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And so the domesticated fish that were stressed were less cautious. That's correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and your conclusion then is that the wild descended stressed fish coped better. So even though they were more cautious, it was more appropriate coping for a predator being present than what we saw in the domesticated fish.
1: That's correct. And if it's thought of in this way, the domesticated fish are just overall from just a development perspective, they are for lack of a better word, kind of ignorant to experiencing mm-hmm. stress. So, in the face of a predator, they're just kind of just going all over the place and putting themselves at risk of being preyed upon versus wild caught fish. They were more cautious. So, when I say more cautious, I mean the, so I measured the latency it took for fish to essentially approach the predator. So, wild caught fish took longer. So this could mean that they're taking more, they're taking in their environment more through their vision, through their, through other senses, such as just different chemicals within the water that the predator is excreting. So they, fish can pick up on that. So wild caught fish were more cautious to approach the predator versus domesticated fish. They were just right at it. And I also want to clarify in that it was wild-caught fish that experienced stress during development.
0: So the fish that were not stressed during development, did you see a difference between the wild-caught and the domesticated fish in that case, or it was only when they were stressed?
1: So it was only when they were stressed. So the wild-descended fish that weren't exposed to stress, they were quicker to approach the predator as well. So this can be thought of in the sense that these fish have been descended quite a bit, quite a few generations from their original wild caught counterparts. So who are experiencing stress quite frequently. So in theory, you could think of, well, I wonder if the wild caught fish would, who are experiencing stress frequently, would also be quite cautious in approaching the predator, taking longer to do so. And the within this experiment, the wild descended fish that did experience stress during development, they have this exposure to, to stress. And thus, when experiencing it in later life, they kind of already have those coping strategies necessary in order to potentially persist through this threat. Right. Yeah. And I think this is
0: important because it's easy to get into this mode of thinking where we think that increased caution is bad, especially if we're looking at pet dogs, right? Because in most cases, they're not actually under threat. But I I think what this study does that's really nice is it kind of highlights or sort of reminds us of the evolutionary function of stress, which is to stay alive, basically. Yes. And to avoid potential threats. And, you know, taking an animal that's used to free living wh- where they are theoretically subject to more stresses and then bringing them into a captive environment, those animals are very likely to display different behaviors. And it's a little hard. I mean, the one thing I just want to mention is I think it's a little bit hard to make a one-to-one comparison with dogs because even though we have free-living dogs, even the free-living dogs are domesticated. Yes. So I don't know if it's quite the same. I don't know enough about the guppy population, but I'm assuming that, you know, there are guppies that really, truly have no interaction with human beings for generations. Whereas the dogs, even free-living dogs, tend to be living in areas where they are interacting with people
1: on some level. Yes. So there is one connection, though, from just removing the evolutionary background piece, which it shows that, you know, from, you know, where you're descended from, how that can have an impact on your behavior. But I suppose the the bigger piece with it is just experiencing stress during early life affecting your future behavior. And I really like your mention of feral dogs, just dogs that are free living, being swooped up and then adopted out within the U.S. And it's something that needs to be done with a lot of thought and a lot of careful action, especially when bringing these dogs into a whole new situation. So with free-living dogs, they're constantly experiencing some type of stress. They're navigating novel environments and situations. They're constantly trying to find food and shelter to survive. So it's a high-stakes environment. But when these dogs are transported and then put into a nice, cozy home with of course, with the intention of having no sort of threat or aversive stimuli, these dogs still act like they're in a high stakes environment. So you may see behaviors such as food aggression or um, fear of strangers, things of that nature. So it's important to discuss the background of where, where, you know, your dog is coming from that way you can develop the skill set and the tools necessary in order to help that dog through those behavioral challenges. So,
0: right. Yeah. And, and I suspect that something similar also happens with puppies that are going through the shelter system and maybe found, you know, maybe they're found without mom, maybe they're found with really malnourished mom, then they're living in a shelter, they might be getting transported around. And it's the same kind of thing with them as they're having a really high level of developmental stress, which is preparing them and is signaling to the body that they will likely be continuing to live in high levels of stress. And so then that's how the animals develop. And when they go into a non largely non threatening environment, all of a sudden, all of these coping mechanisms that used to be appropriate, become problematic. And so this is something that I think we're seeing a lot. And I'm not at all saying, you know, we shouldn't be rescuing dogs. I just want to clarify that.
1: Yes, of course. Um, Or
0: cats or whatever, you know, species we're talking about. But as you said, I think it's really important that, that both the people who are placing these animals and the people who are adopting these animals understand that there's going to be certain challenges that these dogs are likely to face and are educated about how we can help them deal with that. Uh,
1: Just experiences during early life will essentially shape how these pathways and neurons essentially will cement themselves. The positions can become adjusted and some pathways will become strengthened and stay and others will just kind of waste away. So it's, yeah, so it's it's definitely a, a sensitive time to... Experience stress.
0: So that's kind of where you started is looking at stress in fish. But as you said earlier, you've now kind of transitioned to looking more into this concept of one health or one welfare and how humans can benefit from living with or interacting with animals. So, can you start by defining? One Health and One
1: Welfare and explain to
0: the listeners what those concepts are. So
1: One Health, and I'm basing this off of the definition from the CDC, my work in my present lab, the Davis One Health Lab, and also through reviewing a lot of scientific literature on this topic. One Health can be thought of as a collaborative, multi-sectoral, multi- and interdisciplinary approach or framework. So a lot of different experts working together with the goal of understanding and applying knowledge of how local environment can directly impact human and animal health. And that these three domains are not separate in their effects, that they all interact and are all interconnected with one another. So the overall goal of One Health is to achieve optimal human, animal, and environmental health. So there's the consideration of just the human domain, the animal domain, and the environment constantly. And that's the goal. The goal of applying One Health is to just apply that knowledge and use that to assess just different research questions or different public health problems in trying to solve what what you're trying to solve or address what you're trying to address.
0: Yeah. And I think this is a very exciting sort of movement and area of research. And I, I, my undergraduate degree is in wildlife ecology. So, sort of in some ways, similar to yours. And I, and I also, I almost had a minor in environmental studies. I ended up not completing it because I decided I was going to go into
1: behavior. Behavior is great.
0: One of the classes was like really hard to get because they were only offered like every other year or something. So I have a a great interest in the environment and obviously an interest in animal welfare. And then as I've gotten older and I guess wiser, I've also become much more concerned about human well-being and welfare and and interested in issues like diversity and, and equity, especially. And I certainly believe personally that all of these things are connected but it sounds like what you're saying is we have we also have research to back that up so at this point it's not just an opinion but we actually are starting to get data now that it is explaining how these things are interconnected
1: so likely your listeners have heard of uh, G by e effects genes times environment leads to said person personality their physiology etc and So there's there's different sectors of public health that have investigated research problems through a One Health perspective. I do want to pause and say One Health versus One Welfare. With One Welfare, essentially it's the same thing, except welfare encompasses two components of human health, physical health and emotional well-being. So they've become interchangeable. But honestly, I think of One Health as already encompassing welfare. And I do want to elaborate that, you know, I talked about different experts working together who have spent their lives studying subjects. So that's why it's it's not feasible or even necessary to have one person try to cram all of these different topics in their brain in order to address a problem. They should work together with other individuals that have studied these subjects extensively. But so so we have this concept of One Health, but also you can apply One Health, just the thinking of the interactions between environment, animal and human health within your own work. And of course, seeking input from other collaborators, having collaborators will be even more advantageous for your work to move forward. So different public health problems that have been found to benefit from using a One Health way of thinking are, of course, disease transmission. I think we saw that quite clear with the COVID-19 pandemic, antibiotic microbial resistance. Everyone has their own different microbiome. So human health component, deforestation and impacts of local, um, the local plant and animal community. And then we have health disparities among racial and ethnic minorities where uh, the local environment, the resources individuals have access to will play a part in human health. Now, I'm talking a lot about human health. So animal health, I like to think of it as it can be present within your public health problem, or maybe it's not relevant. But regardless, thinking about the environment and how that impacts whichever public health problem you're addressing is crucial. A lot of times things are looked at at as things in a vacuum. You have the person, but the person has experiences and those experiences are dictated by their local environment and what they have access to.
0: Yeah. And one thing, mm-hmm. one of the other women that I researched brought up, this was, uh, I believe it was Sasha Hoba They had done some work and shelters in their area in Canada and found that, and I don't want to get too much into the details because I might get the the, you know, very specifics wrong, but there was at least one shelter, they may have been looking at multiple shelters, I don't remember, but what they found is that the zip codes that were associated with intake of animals were typically very different from the zip codes that were associated with adoption of animals. And so what that means, right, is that most of the animals are coming from certain neighborhoods, certain, you know, parts of the geographic area, that those that's where the strays and the surrenders are coming from. And then they're getting adopted out into another geographic area. And I think that's a really nice illustration of how these things can be connected, right? And what that suggests is that the shelter is not serving those different populations in the same way. And that maybe there are those geographic areas where the animals are coming from, maybe people living in those areas need a different kind of support than what the shelter is currently offering. Yes, offer.
1: and I really like that you brought this up because if you think about it, you—if you want to just address what's going on, it's um, particularly particularly the intakes. Why are there excess intakes coming in? Why are there excess relinquishments and strays and? In order to address that problem, you need to look at, okay, what is the median household income, the average household income within the area? Just looking at different economic factors in order to determine are individuals in financial crisis? Do they need more support like a pet food pantry or, or maybe they need a, a call, a, the access to call, um, a behaviorist at a shelter or just get advice in order to address a problem, a, a behavioral concern. Versus individuals living in an area where there's frequent adoptions and less intakes and relinquishments, the support is there, but the veterinary care access, behavioral health access for animals within the other communities is likely lacking. And that's something I'm really interested in, in addressing these disparities and, of course, losing just pets, which are often regarded as family members. But I'm also interested in how maybe potentially that can be an indicator of a community being in crisis and how can we help them? Can mm-hmm. shelters offer individuals resources that, you know, will benefit animal health, but also their health as well? Just ways to get human food, a human food and pet pantry. I, I saw that within my research through interviews and I was just so in awe of that. It's just. Genius. Also, vaccine clinics for pets and people. Mm-hmm. Just, just that's an example of one yeah. health at work there, and it's marvelous because you're addressing both animal and human health as well.
0: Yeah, I love that idea. I've never heard of that idea. That's a great idea. I mean, I think it's it's really easy. You know, having worked at a shelter for a period of time, and this was many, you know, this is like twenty, more than twenty years ago now. So things have probably changed. I know that things have changed, but I think being in that shelter environment, and to some, agree with tra- to some degree with trainers as well, it can be pretty easy to just sort of lay judgment on those populations, right? And just say, well, they just don't care about their animals. But I-, I think that really is just turning a blind eye to all of the things that they are struggling with. And because they are surrendering an animal doesn't mean that they don't care about that animal. It doesn't mean that they don't want the best for that animal. In fact, they may be making a very logical decision that surrendering that animal is what they believe is best for it if they feel like they don't have the resources necessary to give it a good life. I saw
1: a quote. I can't remember if it was through my work or actually, I think it was through the literature on just pet ownership changes during the pandemic, needing to decide whether to feed your pet or your family. That's so powerful. Of course, it's exactly what you said. It's not the want to relinquish. It's the need to relinquish. So- so, yeah, it's it's really it's really powerful. Yeah. So
0: can you talk a little bit more about your current mm-hmm. work? So you're working on something and there may be more than one thing that you're working on, but you're working on something called the co well yes. study. Correct? Yes, that's
1: correct. So co well covid welfare. It's funny. Some individuals had said co-wolf and I was just like, man, <laughs> that's a cute nickname for it. Maybe I could put a parentheses somewhere, yeah. but. <laughs> right. But yeah. So, you know, taking my knowledge on stress biology and evolution to an extent and animal behavior and, and human health, I've developed several projects that look at animal welfare and human welfare and environment and how that can impact these two components. So with co-wealth, COVID welfare, that looked at pet ownership changes during the pandemic, but looking at how local environment, the local community structure can impact those changes in pet ownership. Environments that are urban versus suburban versus rural or maybe hybrid. Frequency of interaction also with racial and ethnic minorities interested in adopting or relinquishing. So these populations are at a greater risk to live in poverty compared to white populations. And that's something not often talked about. And we also saw these health and well-being disparities clearly through the pandemic. There are higher rates of infection, hospitalization, and death within racial ethnic minority communities compared to white populations. And for further reading on this, Leo Lopez, their work in JAMA, so J-A-M-A, as well as Lisa Cooper's work at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, they have excellent pieces discussing how it's the environmental impacts and access to resources. That is not genes. Stop that. (laughs) And that goes (laughs) into some nasty topics on that with just the ignorance of how environment can play such a huge play in an individual's health. So so let me go back to co-wealth. So yeah, so we're looking at environment, frequency of interaction with racial and ethnic minorities who may be living in poverty, as well as, of course, looking at animal shelter and control operations during the pandemic.
0: Sorry to interrupt you, but when you say frequency of interactions with the minority populations, what frequency of interactions with whom?
1: Are you talking about with shelters? Uh, Okay, great question. So for co what we did is we took the perspectives of animal care workers from different animal shelter and control organizations across the U.S., And we based this off of one perspective per shelter. And these were individuals who were primarily just upper leadership, managers, CEOs, but all employees or volunteers, a small subset of volunteers. And we had asked their subjective, subjective perspectives of how often do they interact with individuals of color? So African-American, Hispanic or Latino, Asian-American, etc. And they had done this on a Likert scale, so not frequently to very frequently. And then through some statistical analysis, you know, I was looking at the juxtaposition between You know, the above norm very frequently to not frequently. And just looking at that outcome against these different, let's see, these different factors and how they can potentially interact with that outcome. So it's epidemiology at its core, social epidemiology. I suppose to plant an additional seed of, okay, why the focus on racial and ethnic minorities? Of course, I am obviously Black, but. The focus comes from within the human-animal interaction health literature, there is consistently an underrepresentation of looking at racial and ethnic minority health benefits of human-animal interaction. And minorities have a different experience to individuals that are white. They encounter implicit bias through a plethora of different interactions in different settings, discrimination, racism, And then also facing an increased risk of poverty, as well as facing the, as well as facing a greater risk of not having intergenerational wealth. There's a lot of literature about redlining and racial residential segregation that occurred during the 20s throughout the 60s. And these phenomena largely are responsible for the design of present day neighborhoods. And again, resources accessible it all comes down to the local environment i suppose i could go more in depth in it but i suppose i'll kind of leave it there and that's where my health equity focus comes from
0: right and so for the purposes of co-wealth then what you're looking at is the impact of local environment and community
1: demographics so just uh, community demographics, local environment. And I'm also looking at just the organization's type as well. And I dictated that by the Humane Society's definition of municipal shelters, privately owned, privately owned with some government involvement, et cetera. And so there is a, I suppose, a, a broader component to this study in that I'm looking at what Individuals have said that they've supplied the community with such as financial resources to help with pet husbandry, pet care, information about animal transmission of the coronavirus, which has been found, of course, extensively to be that animals are just a dead end. So essentially that they have not been found to be able to transmit the virus back to humans. And It's really interesting in that the onslaught of the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about this and some relinquishments I've found in different areas, but then it sort of stopped. And that shows you the power of just public education on these topics. So, so looking at just different resources the community has been supplied with and also the different methods in which they've done so and also looking at common organization problems, staffing, Mental health, and the goal is, of course, you know there's the publication aspect, but summary reports are going to be drafted, given to these shelter organizations that have participated, as well as larger animal health and welfare organizations to further disperse this, so impacting public health in the end is is the goal and do you have results from that study i yet? do i So I'm in the midst of publishing, but I found that animal care workers within communities that they had said were urban communities had experienced a higher frequency of relinquishments compared to animal care workers from suburban communities. I also saw the same for frequency of adoptions. In addition to environment, another crucial piece missing from the COVID animal welfare literature is considering the specific reasoning for relinquishment, as well as adoption. Adoption, I'm very interested in stress relief, companionship, and showing the power of having that during a crisis where you're isolated, but also with relinquishing. Why? Housing difficulties, financial crisis. And I saw that animal care workers that perceived to interact with racial and ethnic minorities at a very frequent basis encountered individuals that were more likely to relinquish due to Housing fragility, housing difficulties, as well as financial crisis. So that hasn't been examined bef- before. So hopefully, you know, this work can generate potential creative interventions to help low income communities, period, regardless of population demographics, but also especially communities that are primarily composed of racial and ethnic minorities, which is where my passion lies, health disparities and health e- equity.
0: Right. So it sounds like overall what this research was looking at is sort of how do humane societies interact with people from different environments? That's correct.
1: Yeah. That's yes. Okay.
0: And so and what you're seeing then is that there are indeed disparities in the interactions that happen, for example, in a higher income versus a lower income area or an area that's made up primarily of, of white families versus more minority families. Thinking about this idea of inequity, one of the things that sort of gets brought up a lot uh, in my conversations with other trainers is this idea that many, many rescues, probably more rescues than shelters with facilities, but I I think it happens in both cases, that they have this requirement that all adopters have a fenced yard. And I, I just wanted to bring that up because I think that that highlight some issues, right? Like that is one particular policy that may actually result in discrimination of certain populations. Indeed.
1: Individuals that live in urban communities aren't necessarily going to have a yard or be able to fence it dependent on, put a fence up dependent on their landlord versus individuals in suburban communities. They're going to likely have, be at a higher likelihood. Of course, I'm never using Will, it's all about just, uh, the, the probability. So individuals within affluent communities, within suburban communities, they're likely going to have yards and maybe have a little higher income to put up a fence. So, so yes, policies like that, they, they re- result in the, a barrier to access for individuals to adopt who individuals that literally may want to devote all of their being financial resources to have an animal because the amount of stress they're facing is profound. And again, human animal interaction, whether animal assisted therapy or pet ownership has been found to have positive health impacts, not just physical, but mental as well. And of course, mental health is connected to physical health. So, and that goes in with, um, the other project that I'm, I'm also working on, the animal assisted therapy project, but. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that just a little bit? Yeah. So so the project that I was hired on for, so the overall overarching purpose of it is to look at microbial transition between therapy dogs and pediatric patients. We have all these bacteria living on us, within us, but some bacteria can lead to um, aversive or negative health outcomes, such as a staph infection from MRSA. So the idea of this project is to not only look at the microbial transmission, which they had a pilot, we've, they had a pilot study before I was hired on, but also to employ a clinical disinfectant intervention on the therapy dogs, essentially having them wiped with a chlorhexidine wipe in between sessions, during sessions, or during sessions versus having um, some sort of bath the night before and essentially looking at to see if that disrupts the transmission of different just pathogens between therapy dogs and patients or micro But my role is to see if does this intervention, it disrupts the session, obviously the therapy session, does that disrupt the positive health benefits that the patient would accrue? And the literature on animal-assisted therapy and human health is dense. It goes goes back decades, I think, to the 60s. Pediatric patients, adult patients, patients with fibromyalgia, patients with cancer, heart disease, and seeing just profound physical and health benefits. So looking to see, particularly if I'm looking at blood pressure and heart rate before and after session to see if there isn't a lessened baseline blood pressure and heart rate after the session, which, again... And this is in people that you're looking at this or the dogs? People within the patients. And also employing a a brief survey to ascertain current emotional health, worry, anxiety. And with the therapy dogs, so specifically for companion animals, I'm looking at not only... Are they experiencing stress? So I'm measuring salivary cortisol. I'm also measuring behaviors indicative of stress, which measuring animal behavior um, is very often measuring frequency and duration. But also I'm looking at behaviors that indicate the dog is enjoying the session, that the dog doesn't feel apprehensive to engage in these social behaviors, where within animal-assisted therapy, Often the benefits have been found to be linked to physical contact opposed to just verbal or or watching. So I have a paper out actually in the frontiers of veterinary science and it's looking at, um, it's basically talking about within therapy dog welfare. We need to start to think about positive welfare as well. There's a deep focus on the negative, but of course, taking away the negative doesn't imply that there's still a good emotional state, you need to also have that positive positive welfare consideration as well, so yeah, so that's great yeah i'm
0: I'm looking forward to seeing the results of more studies like this and i I just love that the research on dogs is expanding so much that we are starting to get this real multidisciplinary approach because there are so many angles that this can come at or can come from. And as you said, it's all, you know, it's just all interconnected, right? We really can't view dog behavior and well-being in a vacuum. Yes. Because it's it doesn't exist in a
1: vacuum. Yes, it's completely true. It doesn't. It's affected by not only present environment, but past environment, past experiences. So again, free free roaming dogs abroad versus dogs within households, it's there are differences in behavior that need to be considered, especially for, you know, the overall benefit to the animals' welfare. So are you looking for research subjects right now? So yes. Yeah, so I'm working on a working on a website, but right now the best way to get in contact is through my LinkedIn, which is Dr. Charmaine Miller. And I'm looking for individuals for another project that I'm leading. Which is funded by the Human Animal Bond Research Institute and Pet Partners. Pet Partners is a national organization that aims to standardize animal-assisted therapy practices, specifically with handlers and dogs. And this project's called the Minority Pet Owner Health Project, where I'm looking at the potential positive health benefits of pet ownership um, and human-animal interaction within minority communities, but also looking to see if the relationship itself can be associated with the lessened stress, the lessened perception of stress associated with past experiences of implicit bias, discrimination, and racism. So there's an ample literature looking at the general population and has been for decades, but I'm taking a more, I suppose, focused approach on a specific community that has been traditionally underrepresented within the literature. And this also stems from my own past experiences, my family's lineage and experiences. So that's why there's a heavy focus on minority health. But for this project, which is survey based like co-wealth, we're looking for individuals of all races and ethnicities. But you need to be at least 18 years old and it's a pilot. There's another stipulation with it in regards to um, where you live within the U.S., but regardless, you can check out to see if you uh, meet the criteria to do the study. And I'd love to have you. And I'd, and the data will be anonymous as well. So there's no risk of, you know, any information being, I t- being tied to your personal identity. Okay, great. That sounds, that's
0: wonderful. So, and so if people want to contact you about that, then they should get in touch with you through LinkedIn. Yes, that's correct. Okay. And I will post a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes when this goes up. So if we're looking at this concept of one health and this podcast is, I think, primarily listened to by dog professionals, but also potentially by people who aren't professionals, but are just really interested in dog behavior. What are some things that people can do now to help maybe be more aware of or or address some of the inequities that are going on. So if, if someone is listening to this that is a, a dog trainer or a behavior consultant or works with the shelter or rescue group, what are some things that they can do to try and address some of these concerns that we're seeing in terms of inequity?
1: Yeah. So within the COVID, the pandemic animal welfare literature, there's been ample talks of Struggles and concerns pertaining to financial difficulties, so being unable to pay a full bill, but wanting to pay a bill or potentially over time, and that's an example—a very helpful example of being able to give that care to that pet. Which, of course, animal welfare professionals are devoted to the pet's health and well-being, and in order to do so, some individuals won't have the total financial means to. Pay a thousand dollar emergency bill or, you know, they adopt a dog. It's wonderful. And then this particular situation, they find out, oh no, they're aggressive when it comes to new toys or something of the sort. And they need to pay a bill for a behavioral, a behavioral, uh, consult. So allowing for payments to be broken up over time and not necessarily utilizing credit based programs because individuals with low income may have poor credit. But there is a study I found by, I, can't, I think it's Kamisa Hill. And it's a recent study, 2022. And it looked at de-identified data of individuals with poor credit versus good credit and their likelihood to pay a veterinary bill or bills over time. So a down payment and then breaking payments over time. And they saw with this data that 92% of everyone had paid off those bills. And that included individuals with poor credit and low income. So, you know, implicit bias plays such a role in everything we do. Implicit bias, as in, and just even, what's the word? Even not intentionally, but subconsciously, the way someone looks uh, based on how you interacted with someone else that looked like this or acted like this or talked like this, that can impact how you interact with that person and help that person. So, Considering your community structure and other factors related to that, sorry for lack of a better word, will be helpful in helping your community. So financial difficulties, gosh, animal behavior and behavior training is so huge right now and so necessary. I've done interviews with individuals saying that the behavioral trainers within their community are overwhelmed and booked out, but they're consistently getting calls of my dog has separation anxiety because I went back to work. And I've seen that so much within my own work and also within the literature or my besides separation anxiety, puppies not giving them the proper training while they're young, which animals, dogs, they thrive on cognitive stimulation. So obedience training and being consistent with it, come stay, sit, things of that sort and using positive reinforcement. The animal will just thrive when they become a young adult and an adult. But of course, sometimes there's problems with being able to do this consistently if you work full time or have multiple jobs. So having access to individuals that can offer day behavioral training or care and being able to work with individuals financially, that's going to help that pet's well-being as well. So that's an example. I've definitely seen financial difficulties a lot.
0: Yeah, that's great. And, and another thing I'm wondering about, too, is, you know, maybe the location where the services are. So if a lot of the services maybe are located in the suburbs, yes. like for a training class or it requires a car to get there, uh, you know, do you feel like that can be a barrier for people, too, is just getting to the facility? Yes.
1: Within my research, transportation has popped up. A lot of cabs won't allow you to have your pet. So even if you're, right. of course, your cat's in a carrier, but not even <laughs> allowing your your animal to, you know, ride with you to the vet. And cabs, Ubers, lifts, that is the big form of transportation today. Now, going on a bus, that is a lot harder when you have a dog that you're trying to, you know, keep attentive and stay with you or carrying around a large carrier and going stop to stop. So... I've seen shelters within my research just offer rides to clients to come to the hospital or come to the, the shelter to talk. That's powerful. And uh, with access to local shelters or hospitals, I talked about earlier about racial residential segregation from the 20s to 60s, which this included individuals that were Jewish, that were handicapped. They had to live in certain areas and could live in other areas. And those other areas were white, the ideal. Just racism was rampant, not only physically but just over just covertly, through the government and the homeowners loan corporation, which is associated with the New Deal from FDR. So let me backtrack here and say that besides who could live where, the development of these neighborhoods were targeted towards suburban communities, homeowners, and these communities were predominantly white. They had grocery stores being built, veterinary hospitals, hospitals in general. And in urban communities, these were left stagnant. So that's why you see in in in, in cities a lot the, the lack of veterinary hospitals and hospitals and why individuals likely commute from urban areas to suburban areas to work. So transportation, yes, thank you for bringing that up. That also is a biggie. If possible, if shelters or hospitals could offer this, if possible. Right.
0: Or even going into like a community center or something in an urban area and offering a
1: class. Yes. Community centers, renting them. I've seen that in um, Mm -hmm. an interview where they'll just rent out a church and have a vaccine clinic or guest behavioral classes. That's also powerful. Bringing it to them, you know, mobile vet clinics. That's also uh, been great. And, and amazing. But there's also been a recent push about telehealth in veterinary care. We have that in medical care, human medical care. But what about veterinary care? How can we make it feasible? How can we make it make sense from with a client that's like, I just want to talk about the behavior of my animal. That can be very likely easily dealt with via a video chat, showing what the dog does, bringing the stimuli out. Or a client's question about vaccines, but they booked an appointment or situations like that where you can reduce caseload and that can help with mental health as, as well. The veterinary field, just bless it. There has been talks of mental health concerns for decades and potentially telehealth can be a a, a huge factor in addressing this. So a lot of really interesting topics that I'm passionate about that I incorporate in my research because, uh, you know, environment besides community structure, there's there's other factors at play that you need to consider. Animal well-being, of course, the veterinary hospital, but also what what is the shelters? A lot of individuals call their shelter back and say, hey, how do I deal with this? yeah, the environment's not just the structure. It's composed of a lot of different things, access to resources.
0: Well, great. Thank you so much. This has been really, really interesting and informative, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for for having me and allowing me to talk about these topics that I'm passionate about. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks. You too. Thank you for listening to the Research Bytes podcast. If you enjoyed this content and would like to learn more, please visit www.sciencemattersllc.com for more information. You can also find the link in the podcast description. The website has information on upcoming events, as well as my monthly research webinars and upcoming courses. I hope to see you there. Thank you.